From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. Welcome to the Diz Unplugged Disneyland Edition, episode 493 for the week of September 6th, 2015. I am your host and resident Disney historian for the Diz Unplugged, Michael Bowling. In my series, 60 Years of Disneyland, we've explored Walt Disney's various concepts for his park, its design, construction, and development up to Walt's passing in 1966 and the opening of Pirates of the Caribbean to the public in 1967. In this segment, I'm honored to speak with a man who not only experienced many of these events, but as a Disneyland cast member worked to make them happen. It is my great pleasure to welcome Ben Harris to the Diz Unplugged. Welcome, Ben. Well, good afternoon. So uh, I've enjoyed a, a wonderful life there at the park. It was uh, my second home for about 10 years. And and thanks to you, we, we all enjoyed a wonderful time at the park. So now, when we spoke, you told me that you started at Disneyland in 1958. But what made you decide to even apply for a position at Disneyland? Well, I had uh, been to the park uh, on the opening uh, weekend, or not the opening weekend, but the opening year, like in September of 1955, uh, two of my high school uh, professors were working there, one on the Mark Twain and one in cash control, and uh, went down for a visit with the family, uh, and I just loved the place. And, geez, it was only 15 minutes from my house, and uh, I thought more and more about it. At the end of my uh, freshman year of college at the University of Redlands, uh, it was over with about uh, that year, about the middle of May, the last final. Some of my friends told me that they had just been hired. They had gone to SC and uh, had gone down earlier for an interview. So me and a friend of mine went down, stood in line for a number of hours just to fill out an application and uh, go through the, the process. And as I walked in to go through, they put a requisition uh, on the uh, interviewer's desk. He was just taking uh, uh, contact information for future. And it happened to be for a person to work on the steam train and someone that had narration speech experience. Well, that's me. Eight years in high school and, and in college at the end. And uh, I was hired. Uh, I read part of the script. Uh, uh, good morning, good afternoon. Welcome aboard the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad. My name is Ben, and I'll be your narrator and guide. And boom, I was hired, subject to a physical, and went over and went through the process. And by the end of the day, I had a script in hand and was told to report the next day for training uh, at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning. And wow. I was hired as a conductor on the steam train. And I found out that Walt owned those personally, the steam mm -hmm. train. And then he had a, a second one, which was the the view liner, the forerunner of the uh, monorail. So I was making a dollar and seventy, almost a dollar sixty-eight and a half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and in those days, in those days, I'd buy three lunches. Oh wow! So, uh, <laughs> now, when did you first meet Walt Disney? Well, I had been. Uh, I 
I went up for training, you know, the next day, and the guy that was training me was Ken Kohler, who happened to be the summer foreman, but who also went up during the summer as the summer supervisor, and he trained me. And uh, about the third or fourth day there, uh, I was bringing out the train uh, with uh, Jimmy Eason on the back, and I was on the front, and uh, we had come through the Grand Canyon and were coming on up because the park wasn't open. We parked the train in front uh, at, at pre-opening, and uh, they slowed the train down and did a whistle, bell, whistle, then something's wrong. So I looked ahead, and I went hand over hand up on the excursion train. You could move along the sidewalk. And as we came into the station, I could I jumped off the train. I could see that there was somebody way up ahead, and that was out on the platform who was kind of looking through the hedge that was over there and, and had his back to me. And I jumped off and I ran up to him and I said, sir, you can't be out here. <laughs> and I turned around and it was Walt. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I couldn't talk. I was stuttering. Uh, the, the engineer and the fireman came up at about this time and they were laughing their head off. <laughs> and uh, it was so funny. And, and Walt started walking. I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Jesse. I'm sorry. And he said, no, you're right, young man. And he says, it's Walt. And he went over to, to go out the exit. I said, it, it, I was stammering and stuttering. I finally got a little composure. And, uh, he said, no, you're right. I shouldn't have been out here. That's not our, that's not protocol. And, and, and he stood there and, and he kind of patted me on the shoulder. And, and he said, is, is it all right if I walk to the engine? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, that that was that first week that I started there, uh, and uh, and I'll never forget it. And uh, over the years, uh, uh, as I returned to the train the following seasons, uh, will never let me forget it. Um, and uh, the next summer, when I returned, uh, I, I went in to check in and to go up, and I, I went up on the train, and I found out that I was foreman. Oh, wow. Because I had worked there the previous year, and and uh, I was filling in for the guy who would be foreman later in the year, but that was the year that the monorail was coming on board, and so I was just filling in. Well, it worked out that um, he went to the monorail as the foreman, and I stayed there, and I was taught by Della Strathman, who was the been the ticket seller all the time, and by the crew, how to fill out the forms and stuff. And all I had to do is remember you go to tickets, go to the front of the train, you go to the back of the train and you go on a break. Not really hard to remember (laughs) 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 and filling out the forms. And and the greatest thing is that second and third and fourth summer at the park, I was the station master on a permanent basis and who would come up one, two, three times a month. Uh, usually when I was opening up, but Walt, and uh, he he had a little humor. He would be off in the distance coming up from the back of City Hall, up, up the berm area where they have the emergency fuel tank buried in the ground, and they put some steps in. And Walt would uh, uh, would look at me and see that it was me, and then he'd point to his chest like me, meaning him, <laughs> and I come over and, and I. <laughs> and I, I would look at him 
and, and wave him over, and he'd come over and he'd say, "Oh, thanks," <laughs> or something like that. He, he loved the kid in that yeah. way. You know, and the interesting thing is, any anyone I've talked to who has worked directly with Walt, as you did, it's the same kind of story where even though Walt was the head of this big company and a movie studio and all that, he was a very humble, easy-to-approach man, didn't throw his weight around, wasn't the kind who said, do you know who I am? I mean, just, you know, just got along with everyone. For Walt, the people there were part of the show, and he liked to be, except when he was taking special tours around and stuff, he liked to be in the background. But he, the first person that he came up to that he recognized or he knew, he would always ask, how's things going? What's going on here? What's going to, how are you feeling? And, and he got to know people. He'd ask about your family, and it made you feel like this was a relative of you. You know, that's, and, and it, he would explain where he was, but he would ask, you know, he, when he would come up with heads of state and other things, of course, we knew about in advance, but he had a special way of bringing them up out of the way, waiting for the next train to come in. They'd be off to the side. And then he would look at you with, with a look like that and kind of a nod, uh, meaning, you know, is it all right to come out on the platform? And you'd open it and you'd, you know, bring them in and set them up. Um, he would, he would ask for your help about things, uh, letting you know what he knew. He said, do you know that, uh, Tony's working on the track today? Oh, Tony was a, again, dancer. He had a crew that went around and, uh, he was in his high sixties, uh, maybe low seventies. And he supervised that track every morning that, that I can ever remember working up there at least the first three years. And, and he would, uh, if he if he didn't see him, he would ask, well, is he all right? He would ask about other people, personal, uh, and he always wanted to know what's going on. How's the crowd look today? And if he came up later when you'd been around for a while, a little like that, he'd say, how, how, are, how are the families? Walt loved to see the three levels, you know, the mom, the child, and a grandpa age people. He loved to see that combination of families being together. And, and he would tell you, that's why I built this place so that mm. people could be out uh, gathering together and, and the adults could find something to do. Okay. Now I have to ask you, I know you accompanied Walt many times when he was taking heads of state around the park. I always have wondered when you see these photos, what did Walt talk to them about? Well, Walt usually met them uh, in the city hall, and they would gather together, the State Department people. Uh, they knew exactly who was going to be there, the number and that. Uh, on heads of state, there were security people that you couldn't see because Walt always took them on the train the first thing because there they could sit down and go around, and he could sit next to them in the... the the seat above it on the excursion train or behind right there to have their ear and and he could kind of point out what they're going to see next or not going to see but he would just talk about uh them and he wanted to know if they had their families sometimes after a while uh that the state department would would that entry the the queue and they would actually bring 
um, some other members of their family, not just the, the, the well, President Eisenhower and Mamie. Uh, and there, there was, I think, three children's or grand, grandchildren or something with them. But, but he would encourage them to get that spirit because with the children, when they're saying the oohs and ahs and laughing and giggling, it's infectious to the adults. And, and, uh, to get on the train, you're seeing the way the country was a long time ago. That first phase going in through frontier land before you loop around and, and go into fantasy land. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, he loved, he loved to take, uh, family members on there when they would bring their kids. Or sometimes it was just the State Department would, uh, have some children with them. No, that's fascinating. I mean, and I know what we even know that when Premier Khrushchev wanted to come to Disneyland, how upset he was <laughs> when the State Department wouldn't allow it. <laughs> yeah, well, Parker, I stood up. I learned some some Russian for the because I was going to do the special spiel that day. Walt, there was a question that Walt was saying, "I'm not going to go. I'll be there, but I'm not going to go with him." Uh, and that's I don't know if people know that, but. Uh, uh, he said we'd go up in the apartment, but he would have, he, he just didn't want to go around. He would welcome him back in the back, but, 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 uh, and they could take some pictures and do all that, but he didn't want to do what he normally did for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and it was a big fight. You couldn't even look behind. There must have been 30 cars behind the city hall, that area parked all the way into Holiday Land. They were parked to press special thing, and that was from six thirty in the morning that morning. Uh, I was there an hour early, and uh, they had some instructions as to what to do and and they were going around people were taking pictures of you and checking you and all of this this kind of stuff. but Parker wouldn't let him go in because of the overpass problem, and uh-huh. it was too late to schedule some helicopters in, and everybody was very quietly very happy and ended that way. <laughs> So now, when did you decide to make working at Disney your career rather than a summer job? Well, they kind of decided it for me. Uh, uh, I had gone permanent part-time at the end of, of 1959. I, I applied, and that's why I came back. And so I, as a foreman, you made 25 cents an hour higher than the people you supervised. Uh, I was going to go on to law uh, and... Uh, it was so much fun working at Disneyland. Those summers, uh, the people that I met, uh, you, you would meet, uh, college students from uh, the Oklahoma and Texas and the mid, mid America schools that always got out early. You would meet them and all the, the, uh, apartment complexes were stashed four and five people to uh, a two bedroom apartment. Uh, they had just built them all around Disneyland and, it, it was fun. It was like it was like going to college during the summer, mm-hmm. but you met uh, you know dozens and dozens of university people, and males and females got together, and there was the beach and activities, and it was fun. So at, I graduated from college, worked that last summer of '61, and uh, was going to Cal State Fullerton, which was in its first year, which was right up the street, about uh, four miles. It was called Orange County State its first year. I was working on my master's degree, 
uh, and uh, working uh, three days a week at the park, Saturday and Sunday and one other day. And uh, in October, they uh, they called me, said, uh, we want to talk to you about going up into supervision. And uh, I had an interview with Eddie Mick on publicity. And the very next day, uh, Bob Matheson, and the sound coordinator, staff assistant to Tommy Walker, and Tommy Walker interviewed me, and they hired me. They offered me a job at $10 a week more than I would be making as a full-time foreman. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, told me my job uh, was to teach narrations because during those five years of, or four years of working there, I had worked on all the rides and attractions for the most part uh, when the train was down and they were moving something or uh, or uh, the track. Uh, it, the train half a dozen times a year would be down for two or three days. And they would send me, I found out later, purposely on a program to work on all the narrations ride. Uh, Walt was unhappy that people were not following the narrations that were designed for the steam train, uh, for the view liner. Uh, that, well, the view liner was no longer there. It was now the monorail. And it was the uh, uh, storybook land and uh, the Jungle Cruise particularly. So I I found out later the reason I was hired is I always followed the narration, um, the protocol, because Walt would tell me in all those little meetings, you got to remember the, your, your signals and the way you act as a train foreman up, up there with the watch that you're using and the timing and the scheduling, you are a actor on the stage, and you're not at Disneyland, you're on an old-fashioned railroad going around the country uh, or on the uh, jungle cruise. You're the old skipper uh, on the boat going out through the jungle rivers of the world. And uh, they wanted me to work with how to use the microphone, how to be clear in your uh, your enunciation and your, your importance of following the script and not just saying the words in a monotone, mechanical way, but in a enthusiastic way, the way that a skipper on a boat would say it, or the way that an announcer on the train would say it, or the way that a teacher would be telling a story to their children as they're going through storybook land, or a mother would read a story to a child. Mm-hmm. And and uh, they they offered me the job, uh, and, and and I was flabbergasted. Because <laughs> uh, it also meant that I got to uh, to learn from really talented people in the entertainment field, and uh, I was the seventh person hired permanently on the staff. We had uh, summer assistants and weekends assistants, uh, people in the music industry that that supervised the talent. But uh, I was I was given a, a job <laughs> where. Uh, where I had uh, six teachers, uh, and because I worked with Bob Allen and Bob Matheson and uh, Tommy Walker and Bill Carden, and uh, really wonderful people who were were pros in the television, film industry, and in the talent industry, and they had helped. Uh, well, some of them had been there since opening day, especially Tommy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Tommy Walker was the director of entertainment 
um, at well, Disneyland. then it was called it, it was called a guest re- or a customer relations. Mm-hmm. It had two departments: the tour guide and hostess area, uh, and the second area, uh, and information letters, guest stuff, and then all the talent in the park. And Tommy, Tommy was Walt's boy. Uh, uh, Tommy created uh, uh, Dixieland at Disneyland, uh, the Christmas parade, the Fantasy on Parade in 1965, uh, fireworks and Tinkerbell. Tiny Klein coming mm-hmm. down, or Mimi Zerbini coming down, that, or Judy Kay. And you worked with. I worked with. Yeah. Can you tell us a little about what you did for the fireworks? Because that's the highlight for a lot of people when they're at well, Disneyland. Well, the, the fireworks were a live show. You were the producer and the director. Uh, you had uh, a sound control booth uh, above Carefree Corner. Uh, that's at the end of the Main Street on the right hand side, facing. And you had a sound box there with controls and a live microphone. And you had a sound man there working with you. And my job uh, was four nights a week in 1962 and 1963. During the day, I would check the carillon to see that the keys, the time of the carillon coming up exactly at nine o'clock. That, okay, so I know the carillon is going to strike and hit nine right at nine. And then I would come back, uh, at eight o'clock at night after dinner and, and go up. And my first job would be to make a live announcement, uh, uh, from there that would go to throughout the park about what the entertainment program was. And this was roughly at eight 30 in the evening. Uh, tonight our special program is, uh, Count Basie, uh, at the, uh, 20,000 league stage and uh, in the Golden Horseshoe, the Ward Singers. You would announce the seven or eight groups that were performing and what location. And then you would remind them at nine o'clock tonight, Walt Disney presents fan- er, presents Fantasy in the Sky. At uh, 15 minutes to the showtime, you would make an announcement throughout the park. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the Magic Kingdom, we invite you to turn towards Sleeping Beauty's Castle, where at nine o'clock tonight, Walt Disney presents Fantasy in the Sky. And that was a live announcement. Then you did at 10 minutes till you would do control to the mountain. The mountain would answer back and you would say, stand by control to fireworks Stand by control to the catching towers Stand by control to lights one. Stand by, control the lights too. They would answer, knowing that they were there ready to go. So you confirmed that the the mountain where Tinkerbell would be released, the area where the fireworks would be exploded, the area where the person would end up at the catching tower in back of the Fantasyland Theater up in a tree in a special controlled area with these huge mattress type things, <laughs> these football player type guys, you know. Uh, but those, uh, hopefully we wouldn't get a dislocated shoulder because Tiny Klein in 62 and 63, uh, at 80 years of age and being almost five feet tall, she had her own rig that came down from the mountain and there was no control of speed. So she had just come down depending on the weather, depending on, uh, the weight and, and various factors and the lift that she got 
between 26 seconds and 36 seconds. 26 seconds, she would hit and bash him up against another mattress that was on the far end of the place. They would come back. But we wanted 32 seconds was the ideal thing. We corrected that later on. Huh. And uh, I wonder how fast she made announcements. She, I wonder how fast she'd be going. I wonder, like, how many miles per hour she was traveling when she went. Listen, NASA NASA <laughs> figured it out for us one time because uh, after the incident uh, with the, the the thing exploding there, they they developed a system of uh, of them getting off where they could get off in thirty seconds. They could get out of their get out in the suit step into this basket, this basket would release and go down this wire real fast mm-hmm. for three of them. And it was called the Tinkerbell Escape System. <laughs> <laughs> and and they did this by gauging. They needed to create something like we had there mm-hmm. from the mountain, you know, because they're up there on the, the space thing. And and off to the side, they there uh, you go up in an elevator, you climb up the last floor, you, you're still concealed in there. And, and you're, you're locked on to this cable, which was tiny's. And, uh, then when they, you have a strap around your waist, like a big belt. And, and then when I say go, because the signal was standby mountain and go. And, you know, and, uh, then they would just let go of the uh, belt and then she would slide down. Well, they had, it, the, the the number of feet and the rate per second and all this with weather and with that and of course they did, they had their own catching power mechanism which was you know um, controlled with uh, with computers <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, it, it was a wonderful show. Tiny made more money than any any director in the park. She she made either fifty five, sixty five, or finally seventy five dollars a night. And she had to be there at eight o'clock and she would be there until 10 o'clock when makeup and stuff would be taken off. And, uh, just the most charming little old lady in the world. And her only concern was she wanted Walt to let her go down just hanging on with her teeth, not with a harness. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and we laughed every time. And she was serious. Uh, she would sit and give us big hugs because uh, you know, I, I would go up at the beginning when Matheson was, was doing the narration and watch her come down the mountain and be up there and see that form of it. Then I went over at the same time the next time and saw her come down. So I saw the various steps in the show. And like I said, you had to do a, a live announcement. And, and, and to this day, I remember it, you know, mm-hmm. a long time ago in a faraway land lived a sparkling little spirit named Tinkerbell who sometimes to this day returns to fly above the magic land of fantasy. And the story is told to children of all ages that if you wish long enough and believe strong enough, Tinkerbell may appear to fly above the castle and light fantasy in the sky. Here comes Tinkerbell now. (laughs) That's great. I yell fire in the control. Fire, fire. I'm sorry. Oh no, I, that's that's wonderful. I, I wish did they that, would bring that I back. Did that four or five <laughs> nights a week for two years. That's remarkable. And and, uh, and you don't forget it. No, I'll and, bet. and 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 the, the station wagon would pick her up 
because after she went to wardrobe, uh, all the Tinkervilles, you're in wardrobe, you're going through the, they have this dress type thing on you and the big old hat and then a plain clothes security guy is walking ahead of you. And then John Dykeman or Bill Gills, one of our summer supervisors, uh, would be walking them up uh, to the mountain about uh, 8.30 or 8.30. Uh, and uh, like I said, you go up the B side, you get in the elevator, you go all the way up. You get off where we have the basketball court and the break area in there, and then you climb straight up these steps and and lift it up, and uh, you're on the mountain. And our safety engineer and and Johnny Dotman or Bill Gills would be the release person, and there would be one other person there, uh, always three people plus plus Tiny, or later on it was Mimi Zerbini, and then after that Judy Kay. Mm-hmm. Those were the first three. And this is also, was this when they would light the fireworks with flares while they were listening to the music oh, as well, their cues? Yeah, they, uh, they, over there where we had the star in, in the warehouse area between the two warehouses, there was a boneyard kind of place. There's where we had the pedestal where in 1962 the, the star that would go on the mountain was placed. And and right next to that was this field uh, that was scrubbed off, and it was just dirt. And uh, the first couple of years that I was there, it was just them putting in individual mortars or sets of three or four mortars down into the dirt and packing them in and then and putting a cover seal on them. And then when they would come in to do the show, they would come in uh, an hour and a half before the show. And they would put uh, so many, there's two-inch shells, three-inch shells, four-inch, and then the big six- and eight-inch, what I call chrysanthemums. But they were all with, with, with just wires going out. Uh, and then they would go through and hook them up in certain sequences. And, and they would fire off like five at a time with different lengths of fuse. But that was all done them going by with a torch, yeah. two men. One on one side and one on the other. Uh, and then, then finally, uh, in 64 or 65, uh, they started putting in, uh, the electrical firing system. So by 65, but 64, we had, uh, the beginning of an electrical system where the guys would stay out of the way because those, if, if, if they had been off just a little bit on the angle or, or if they went off in the, in the container, uh, it would knock the next one, and it, it was more dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey like Arison, that. Mickey Arison, not the guy that owns the, uh, the the cruise ship company. He was the guy that was the, the foreman of the guys that lit the fireworks over there, and he was the one that he and Bernard Wells were the ones that we communicated with to see how they do it, and and they made four hundred dollars a night was the fee for sending off. Uh, 87, 87 shells and then a cluster of, of uh, 30 in the finale. Wow, that's a lot in those days. <laughs> so Now, I, I remember you told me another story since you were working on a narration where you tested out, you demonstrated the narration of the Jungle Cruise for Walt and some other people. Well, in 1962, um, they wanted to expand the Jungle Cruise. I had worked on it uh, two or three times uh, 
previously, so I was familiar with it. And also, I had done narration checks on it, uh, going out to check the people uh, in starting in 61 and in 62. At the end of the summer of 62, it closed because they were putting in the uh, a new area, the sacred bathing pool of elephants. And they had to drain it because the audio-animatronic figures, uh, they were the first phase of uh, audio-animatronics, the sacred bathing pool of elephants, and uh, a few of the other things were changed. Well, uh, the person in charge of of doing that for Walt uh, had been uh, Mark Davis, and Mark had worked on it, and they had models at the studio, and so at the end of the summer... Uh, they took it down to install the new uh, the sacred bathing pool of elephants and the uh, lost city of Ganesha that was in just before you got to the elephants. So that was the new area. Well, I've been down at Mark's office and, and seen the drawings that he had, all the books that showed what he was working on, this ancient Cambodian city uh, and this Indian elephant area. Uh, and drawings, and also the models. You walked by and you saw the models of these. And uh, uh, Matheson wanted me to do the narration change because I was familiar with what you were seeing, but how much time, because the boat was on that same track, (laughs) (laughs) in terms of time, it's about a a seven-and-a-half-minute trip from the time you leave the dock until the time you return and start unloading. Um, And... Uh, I had worked up a new narration and been down with him and to check it for authenticity and time. And we'd cut this in and cut that out. And, uh, and we had got what I thought was the final version that he had approved everything that was in there. And, uh, that's the last I heard of him. Uh, and, uh, then, uh, in, uh, the summer was over or the summer was over. The, the, the new changes were going, taking place in there. At the same time, the treehouse was under final construction uh, right next to it, which overhanged the uh, the area. And uh, I was uh, I heard that they were going to uh, start it up again, get it ready for Christmas. And this was in sometime in November. And I uh, I didn't pay any attention to it. it just, we were waiting. I thought he was going to get Walt Walt's approval and, and stuff. But um, he had approved it. That was good enough for me at that point. I was walking back from uh, the maintenance area to Adventureland. The park was closed. Uh, and as I come out there, Dick Nunes yells at me. Dick was director of operation. He says, Harris, come over here. And I came over there, and there was, in the boat, there was Mark Davis and Alice, his wife. And there was... Um, um, the uh, landscape architect, Bill Evans, and Walt. And they had uh, been going around seeing the, the new animation of the elephant bathing pool and, and the new changes. And he says, run, get your script and, and uh, take us around. And I said, what do you mean? And, and he said, well, we will, we'll want to, uh, to, to get the actual feel, stuff like that. I said, I know the script. I mean, <laughs> uh, that's one one thing that I was pretty good on, and I'd worked on it for for months off and on. And uh, so I got in, and, and uh, Walt said, well, take us around. 
Now, I had driven the jungle boat umpteen times as skipper or as brake during uh, train time when the train wasn't operating. So I got on there and uh, did the uh, welcome aboard. My name is Ben, and I'll be your skipper and guide down the rivers of America. And the first phase of it was all the same. You know, folks, turn around, take a good look at the dock. We may never see it again. (laughs) And, you know, you're... The, the, the stress, and before we had left, Walt said again, now he said, now remember, young man, you remember, young man, you're not at Disneyland, you're, and you're not on the train, I think that's what he said, <laughs> and you're not on the train, you're an old skipper on the boat, on the rivers of America, or the rivers of the world, the jungle rivers of the world, just like the script says, mm-hmm. and, and, and so, so I, I, I did that, oh, Smiley, the granddaddy of all. And then here comes the new stuff over here, uh, the, the sunken lost city of Ganesha. And there's the sacred bathing pool of Indian elephants, a sight seldom seen by civilized man. And we talked about that, and he laughed and giggled at, at the narration of the, of the big shot and a little squirt with the crocodile in the water, and the little baby shooting it in the alligator's mouth, or the crocodile's mouth, and then the old lady that's taking her bath, her afternoon bath, you know, or right out in public and then watching out for the danger of the, the spray across. So we went around and a couple of the things had changed uh, that I wasn't aware of. They had taken out the, the rhinos twisted around and nothing was there. So as you're approaching Schweitzer Falls, uh, there, there's nothing to talk about over here before we had a, a thing. And, uh, Walt says, uh, Bill, weren't you uh, telling me about that bamboo over there growing real high, stuff like that? He said, yeah. He said, that stuff grows over 100 feet tall. And uh, at, at the opening, they had the toucan bird was gone and the big butterfly. There was just the, uh, a minor rainforest, and we were no longer naming the rivers that we were on. Uh, so that was eliminated. But... He said, Evans, what did you tell me that trees was over there? He said, Bill Evans said, that's the dragon's blood trees that actually bleeds red when cut. Well, Walt says, that's what we'll put in there. So that was inserted into the strip uh, and the bamboo growing place. And then when we came to the tree house up above us, because that just, just discounted everything, Walt says, we'll have to make a little exception. And Bill, uh, and all the jokes about Bill calling Latin names for things, Bill says, I don't know what to call that thing for a Latin name. He says, it's just a species Disney dendrum. Everybody (laughs) laughed. So that's rising high above the giant Swiss family treehouse, species Disney dendrum gigantum. And then you turn around and look at the crowd and say, that's Latin for tree. That was the one place <laughs> that you could be out of character. And that's, so by the third trip around, Walt says, you got it down? He says, that's it. And, and that, that was the way it was approved. And this was all in that three or seven and a half minutes. Uh, there were a few other little changes here and there, <laughs> but, uh, 90% of, of what we started with, uh, the, the new additions were all approved and it all fit in that time. And now it was a, you know, run up and get the thing prepared, and <laughs> written down that way, and 
and and get it to operations and then start training the uh, the people and by this time we had uh, uh one of the projects I was assigned to that, that came down from Walt was we had trainers we had narration trainers that worked on each ride and they uh that that was a classification and they were instead of just whoever happened to be around uh telling this guy the script and all or a foreman we had the best people that were certified that we had recordings of and scripts and uh, that worked that worked very well on the rides for a long time now i know that on november 22nd 1963 you had to make a very somber announcement to disneyland where reality really hit the park yeah, hard um, uh it uh one of the two well the most sad and um i had um john kennedy i voted for him i i had taken him around on the train with walt on one occasion and uh, another occasion with him and his brother and and a party uh they were all here during the in 1960 when the uh, campaign was in uh, los angeles the disney uh, the uh, democratic convention um, I just got in and it was about, uh, nine o'clock and I was upstairs with Chuck Corson, who was the, uh, manager of the production department, the number two under Tommy Walker, Tommy, uh, and Bob Matheson, I think were at the studio, uh, uh, or, or some other occasion. I was no longer the announcer, but I still filled in, uh, cause I just received a promotion in October to, as production coordinator instead of a uh, sound coordinator. And, um, we heard that, that there'd been a, an assassination attempt and, uh, Chuck and I ran downstairs in the back office and went out to the, uh, out, outside and then into the hostess lounge down there. There was a lounge that was used, uh, where the hostesses, uh, would be, um, it, it was a, there was a rest, restroom area and a lounge area, a couple of couches because also it was used as a secretary area, uh, and, uh, to, to, uh, for information letters. And if the PBX operators couldn't answer the questions, there were always a couple of tour guides or others down there answering letters or, phone calls, etc. But they had the only TV set in town. RCA had done a commercial about six months before and had left one of their color TV sets, the big ones down there. So Chuck and I ran down there like mad. The girls had already heard, and there were about eight or nine people in there. Chuck and I sat down with them, and we watched for the next 20 minutes about the, uh, the, the assassination attempt. Uh, and all the new, every, every broadcast was on that. We were watching it and, uh, then all, and the girls were crying and Chuck and I, you know, they knew where we were, uh, cause we had a, you have a private line down there from our offices up above. We said, call us if anything important comes in. And about that time, Card Walker called and, uh, they had just announced the death. That, that John Kennedy was dead and card had called and, and 
Chuck was talking to him like that. And, and he just said, he's here. And he handed me the phone and it was card said, uh, something to the effect of, uh, Roy or I or what, uh, we, we want to make an announcement. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Chuck Corey was a better announcer than I. And, and, and he said, make it short and sweet. And, and within the next 15 minutes, uh, and, uh, operations, operations will alert and get all their people out and do it. Well, he said to me, because I knew how the system worked. I had made hundreds of announcements from PBX and the control room up there. So I walked over and Chuck just, you know, gave me a pat on the back and, and said, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be waiting for you. So I walked up above the, uh, area where it's, where Mr. Lincoln is now. It used to be called just the opera house. And there were offices up there, and at the far end over where the Bank of America used to be was the PBX control room, where there was positions for three operators to plug with the plug-in phones. They all came in there. But also, all the sound controls for all of Disneyland, every area are there. And you just have to to push uh, a control, uh, and there's a special lever that you pull. If, if we were to have a national emergency, like an earthquake or something, so that the sound will go to every place we have sound, not just Main Street and the plaza and the various lands. There's about 11 sound systems that are inside the park. And then there are backstage areas with nine or 10 systems. And then there are some that are on the areas, but I, I I had never used that emergency, but I knew how it worked. And the girls were crying when I came in or tears. I was still kind of shaking and I just took a deep breath, closed my eyes and thought about what I was going to say. And I, uh, I pushed the control to master emergency all on. I had never done that before. And then just a soft background music is there. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, a special Disneyland announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a special Disneyland announcement. Disneyland has received confirmation from NBC News in New York that President John F. Kennedy fell victim to an assassin's bullet in Dallas, Texas. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, the president is dead. And then I threw the music through a, through a thing, a soft, real real sober music and says ladies and gentlemen Disneyland has confirmation that President John F. Kennedy fell victim to an assassin's bullet 
in Dallas, Texas. The president is dead. And I looked out the window because you could see the windows. Employees were coming out Main Street, all the girls in their old-fashioned outfits at the Emporium. People were standing out. The streetcar just stopped in the middle of Main Street. The omnibus was in motion. It stopped. The fire engine just set over the corner. Employees came out from Hills Brothers. The people on the street stopped. It was about 1130 or something. And all all management people were out, uh, told to be in the area. And then the decision is, are we going to close earlier? What are we going to do? And they had already told me that we were going to do just lower the flag at that time. And uh, two security guys came out and went over and uh, lowered the flag to half-mast. People were looking at the flag and sitting down. And uh, I just stood there for a while. And then by the time I got back to the office and walked, uh, I stood by the flag and, oh, well. The decision was made that we would close at the regular time. We would have a special retreat ceremony. And so I would go back and do a thing with the band coming down the street without Mickey, just, just the band themselves, just as drums, and that they would play taps. And then they would lower the flag by going up to the top and then coming back down. And there would be three military men that were in our security that would do it. And so we did a special announcement on that. And in between, when they said we'd be closed the next day, Roy had made the decision. I went out and cut a couple of special tapes for the main gate that said, you know, when people came in the next day, they would say that we were closed and why. And uh, to put signage, uh, because you're usually not closed midweek. Mm-hmm. So and I got through that without my normal... <laughs> That was a lot to get through. Anyway, now I know you had mentioned that you became, um, you were promoted to production coordinator. And I know you worked as part of Walt's team at many uh, milestone events in in the life of Disneyland. Uh, You you worked at the grand opening of the 64-65 New York World's Fair. Uh, Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, we went back to do two things. We went back to do a the grand opening of the exhibits in April 14th of 1964. Chuck Corson and myself and Jack Lindquist were on the company plane, the Gulf Stream. We just got it a month earlier, flying back to go and uh, do a World of Color TV show, Disney Goes to the Fair, uh, and uh, to do the grand opening of uh, the... Uh, it's a small world, UNICEF, Pepsi-Cola. And uh, we uh, had a whole place lease back there called Silver Towers, and we already had about uh, 70 people back there. Pete Crimmings was in charge of the uh, It's a Small World exhibit. Walt and Lily were staying at the Walroth Historia. Uh, and uh, Chuck and I were staying in the Silver Towers uh uh, about two floors below uh, Joe Fowler, but there were, uh, we had uh, like 60 apartments rented in the, in the complex, uh, two people, and we would be there for the next 
for the next 18 days. Uh, like I said, this was the 14th, the 22nd was the grand opening. Ham Lusk, that, that was directing the uh, Disney Ghost to the Fair film, uh, had hired uh, a, uh, a coordinator from New York called Bill O'Sullivan, and we had the, uh, the whole gist out there. Uh, we had to go in and get our credentials for the fair and, and, and tell you about Pam and, and uh, Bill O'Sullivan being smart because Tommy and Duck Corson and myself and uh, Jack Lindquist all went to get our credentials and there were hundreds of lines in this huge warehouse where they were getting credentials. We walked over to the side area. They went in, took our picture, gave us our credentials. And then since this was the 14th and we were going to begin filming on the 18th and 19th and 20th and 21st with all of the Disney characters roaming around the fair in the various exhibits that had some relationship with Disney and with our sponsors. Um, they gave us, uh, they said, well, uh, you, you need something special because there are going to be workers all around your place. So Bob Dorfman, who was head of the New York office that was with us, he, his card had a picture of Mickey Mouse on the back of it. So they took that picture of Mickey Mouse, put it on the back of our IDs, and we didn't put it at the front of our IDs. That ID would allow us to go anywhere in the fair whatsoever, even <laughs> during construction. Why? Because guess who we hired as the 200 extras to be in it? We hired the security company's families. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we could go, you know, we could, we could go anywhere and there'd be workers, but by seeing that Mickey Mouse, pinned to our lapel and in, in our stuff in our pocket, that was the credential. Normal people just had an ID that showed them to get in the credentials and for one exhibit. Mm-hmm. We had that. And so we were we had to of course it's a small world exhibit. Uh we had the IBM exhibit, the uh, uh the Ford exhibit, the uh Eastman Kodak exhibit, uh the General Electric exhibit. Because the whole theory of this is that Disney has gone to the fair and we brought along Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and some of the other figures and we lost Goofy or we <laughs> lost Dopey, the dwarf. He got lost. And that the whole theory, we, we were all looking, going through the various exhibits looking for Dopey and we would find remnants of him along the way. Mm-hmm. So th- we actually filmed that for, for four different days. Uh, and, uh, the, all we provided for the extras was uh, a bus transportation in, lunches, and then, of course, a bunch of uh, uh, souvenirs that, that, that they were at the fair. And, of course, it was very heavy on Mickey Mouse hats and pennants and stuff and, and stuff for Small World and balloons. But uh, we could go anywhere we wanted to. And it was Ham was the director on it, and uh, as he was on so many of the projects that we worked on. And then for the actual thing, we had we had a small world balloon that was the size, oh, about uh, 60 foot in circumference and painted up with the UNICEF exhibit. But on the top of the roof of the It's a Small World, we had giant balloons, 40-inch balloons, various colors, 
with the flags of all the countries that were members of UNICEF, and they were presented in the order that they had joined UNICEF. So they were up that covered the, the very top of the roof, and we had a trap release uh, of, of those balloons that we were going to do. At the same time, we were going to release 10,000 multicolor balloons, and we got special permission from LaGuardia Airport from the air transportation authorities to send that they sent a notum out that they changed the flights. They changed the flights that day of planes arriving and departing from LaGuardia for a two hour period <laughs> that we were going to release all of these, this large balloon, UNICEF and the, uh, the hundreds of, so of the 40 inch balloons that had the flags of the countries. And then of course the 10,000. And, uh, but a special notum, and that, that was, we didn't know we had the notum approved until about an hour before. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that was Walt cutting the ribbon down there. And as he cut the ribbon, uh, I gave the signal for the fireworks salutes, uh, and, uh, the, over, and the fireworks went off, the balloons went up, the little balloon up, and the first boat went out with Walt and the Pepsi-Cola president of the company who was the sponsor and the representatives from UNICEF and children of the world uh, that were in the native costumes of the countries. Mm -hmm. It was, it was a nice presentation. Another show that you worked on was a big milestone for Disneyland and that was the 10th anniversary show. Yeah. The 10th anniversary show, actually uh, we shot, uh, a portion of it, because uh, of the new Jingle Cruise that was done in 63 for the Velt, a portion of that was used, and uh, about a 10-minute portion of the Tiki Room that had never been released, the grand opening of the Tiki Room. And then we had uh, the uh, 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 Dixieland at Disneyland segment from 1964, which was the big segment because we were we were filming the final stuff at the park. Uh, we had an audition at the studio with a, to get uh, the candles and the uh, birthday cake. It needed 12 candles and 12 birthday cakes, two spares each. And we were going to do with all the characters in front of the castle. So over four days, uh, the last three days of... Uh, of September and the first day of uh, October of 1964, we wrapped up and finished. We had that one extra day in, in October and it shows, uh, uh, footage from Christmas, uh, or Disney at, at many lands uh, over the years, the holidays and all the characters are coming out of the castle doing their routine. We had Mary Poppins come down the wire the girl that had been her sub uh, in the movie and the, the uh, their routine with the chimney sweeps and Mary Poppins. And then we had all the characters and then we had the birthday cake and it actually was three cakes. One is this, the full cake with the candles. And then the other is portions of that because the candles come to life and then the cake comes to life. And then we show some of the, the things that have been filmed over the years. But uh, Walt wasn't in that except for uh, the, the 
pre-thing that they did at the studio uh, at uh, of him announcing the show. But but that was that was pretty spectacular. Now that that wasn't the biggest one. That, that I mean that was that was a great show because right after that uh, in in January this the the, the tenth anniversary show uh, was, was released and uh, we had the Disney ambassador or the Miss Disney Tencennial, um and uh, Julie Ream. Uh, work with Walt, uh, and, and Walt was showing, uh, some of the things that we would be doing. Mm-hmm. Then let's see, uh, the, the big one was Mary Poppins on August 27th, 1964, uh, at, at Grauman's Chinese theater where we closed, closed off Hollywood Boulevard, uh, on a Friday, Saturday night period, uh, and, uh, their Saturday night, and broadcasted our, our live show over KTTV that, that, uh, for the benefit of Cal Arts. And we worked on that. Uh, Tommy was the producer of, of that. And that was by far the biggest, most expensive one that we had ever done. And, uh, we, we also did, uh, uh about two World of Color shows a year from the park, uh, that, were segments that were taken over a period of time with with grand opening of Small World, with grand opening uh, of uh, the uh, Mr. Lincoln in 65. And uh, there was uh, Fantasy on Parade in 65, the big event, uh, where Walt gave us $40,000 for new costumes and stuff, and we ended up spending... 40,000 more than that. And he was happy because as he said, thank God for Mary Poppins. Disney films up until 1964 when we did that, Disney films, uh, they, they'd spend a million dollars maybe for a film, maybe three million tops. They spent seven million dollars almost for Mary Poppins. It returned 50 million dollars its first season and another 50 million the next year and a half and Walt must have said and I must have heard him say it uh, uh, a dozen times thank God for Mary Poppins <laughs> and that's why Mapo is called Mapo the engineering firm of the company that's why we did Fantasy on Parade our own parade with our own characters that's why Bill Justice and, and the three other art people and construction people worked for four months on doing Fantasy on Parade. And uh, Fantasy on Parade's 50 years old this year. Wow. That's amazing. Ben, I know you have many more stories to share with our listeners, including the grand opening of Pirates of the Caribbean and sharing your thoughts about working with Walt Disney. And we'll get to those stories in our next segment, and that of the 60 Years of Disneyland. So that concludes this segment of the Diz Unplugged. Please listen to our other segments this week. Thank you for listening. And I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney. 